0: We are pro-cannabis media. You want to make money in cannabis? Listen to Jeff Finkel, the CEO of Arcview out of New York. He's been investing for years, and now he's on In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. This podcast is supported by Revolutionary Clinics in three locations now in Massachusetts, two in Cambridge, one in Fresh Pond, and one on Mass Ave in Central Square, and one on Broadway in Somerville. Revolutionary Clinics, where the patient comes first. Hi, everyone. Welcome to a very special edition of In the Weeds with Jimmy Young. And we are actually not on location anywhere, but we're in our offices here in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And joining me on the phone is an old friend from New York City. His name is Jeff Finkel, and he's been named one of the 25 angel investors in New York you need to know. So that's one of the reasons why I figured I'd hook up with Jeff Finkel again after all these years. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Jimmy. So how did you ever get into the investment space of cannabis? I think that's really the first thing, and then we'll get into art for you. Sure. Well, I spent the first 18
1: years of my career as an operating executive in the software industry. I started a company, and through a series of acquisitions, I ended up at Cheyenne Software, which was a hyper-growth software company in the 90s, and then eventually a Computer Associate when Computer Associates acquired Cheyenne. Uh, I stayed at CA for a couple of years, had a great time, but I got recruited out to start a venture capital fund focused on the tech industry in 99. I ran that to 2009, and I was an angel investor after that, but I was really looking for something different. I was really looking for a different sector, to invest in and to to sort of apply my craft. And I ran into an old friend that started an investment bank focused on cannabis. I I knew nothing about it uh, in terms of an investment predicate and uh, learned a lot from him and decided to jump in and created our first fund, which is a member-managed venture fund focused on cannabis, which we've now since brought over to Arcview. But I think it was just a sequence of events um, as an investor
0: in New York, looking for something new and finding it. So tell me a little bit about what's going on with ArcView right now. A lot of great things.
1: So, you know, ArcView historically has been the most prolific angel investing network serving the cannabis industry. Since 2010, I think over $270 million have found its way into over 200 companies through members of the ArcView network. And that's really a lot of money. Um, And so ArcView had always sort of played the role of organizing and convening these investors and hosting events for these investors to meet companies and hear presentations from thought leaders. In June of 2019, ArcView raised some money with the idea is to turn on a series of revenue streams that they hadn't been involved in in the past. So they're keeping that sort of event and membership business but they're also opening up a broker-dealer, right? So they've filed papers with FINRA to open up a broker-dealer and to sort of be in the middle of those transactions, right? If they're they're bringing investors and and entrepreneurs together, they should be in the middle of that transaction. And then separately, um, I've entered into an agreement with Arcview to build a principal investing platform that we're calling Arcview Ventures. And so Arcview Ventures will invest money on behalf of LPs into the cannabis industry. So Arcview really is now sort of um, bifurcating the business opportunity into three distinct areas to really turn on the revenue stream um, and leveraging the great brand that they've created.
0: Uh, You mentioned the word uh, member managed fund. Can you explain what that is? Yeah,
1: you know, it's a unique structure. It's sort of... The perfect sort of merger of a traditional venture fund and a loosely coupled angel network. So in a traditional fund, a limited partner invests in a fund, right? And there's a general partner that runs it and the limited partner is passive. They get a report once a quarter and, you know, they speak to the managers when they need to. And uh, it's very structured, and when, it, when the general partner decides to invest in a company, they just decide on their own through their own internal investment committee, and the limited partners have nothing to do with it. In an angel network, it's just the opposite. Everybody's looking at companies, and they're making an independent decision on their own whether or not to invest in a company that they've seen. Well, a member-managed fund brings both of those things together where we enable limited partners who we call members to be also part of the decision-making process on how the fund runs and in which companies the fund invests.
0: Got it. So I was at MJ biz this past December in Las Vegas. And one of the keynote speakers was a guy by the name of Mark Randolph. Are you familiar with that name at all? Yes, I am. Okay. So he, he's the guy who started Netflix and did very well, let's just say. But he admitted that it was difficult to be an angel investor because he liked everything he saw. Now, how do you as an angel investor decide what is a good opportunity and what is not? You know,
1: it's really hard. And one of the things I've seen with angel investors is they tend to create a connection with the entrepreneur and oftentimes will make the decision to invest when they feel like, There's something missing in the entrepreneur that they can bring, and that gives them that connection. But I would argue that that's maybe not a reason to invest. In fact, it might be a reason to walk in the other direction, because ultimately, you want to pick entrepreneurs that can do it without you. It's really good to be able to understand the business and to be value-add, but once you get that connection in your mind that says, I think I know what they should be doing, that's really a bad sign and a bad predicate to move forward with that investor with that investment, because you really want them to know what you're doing. And I've seen that mistake be made time and time again. One of the reasons why the member-led model works so well is that investor can now sit in a room, be part of the decision-making process with a cohort of other investors like them, where they can share the due diligence exercises among them, leverage each other's business expertise and contacts to make a better investment decision. It's very hard to do this
0: alone. Gotcha. And I remember um, in one of our early talks a few months back, you talked about the importance of the team, that the investment goes not just with the entrepreneur, but with the team that the entrepreneur put together. How important is the team to an investor? You know, I think, um,
1: I I even think I have a contra point of view here. Um, Most people will tell you team is everything. And team is very important. Team is very, very important. But oftentimes companies fail because their product solves a problem that people don't really have, or if they have it, it's not topical. And I would almost argue that, it's almost a luxury to fail because of execution or a poor team. You've got to first get over a fundamental hurdle that you're solving a problem that people have and that market forces there's tailwind to sort of support the solution that this company is creating for that problem um, that will sort of drive this thing without friction. Most companies don't get past that point. So while team is important, and I don't think anyone would tell you team is not important, I almost think it's a second-order magnitude problem. And the first-order magnitude problem is really understanding the timing and making sure you're, you're solving a topical problem. So that's probably not the answer you're hoping.
0: No, 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 no. It, it explains. Yeah. You know, most people say team, 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 team. And um, I don't think it's only team. Well, there you go. And you're the one who said team, 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 team when I first called you. So, you know, I'm just saying you are the source. You are the source on this. And by the way, you reserve the right to change your mind. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, These days, 2020, is cannabis still a good investment for the investor? I mean, a lot of things have happened now. You hear a lot of these companies like MedMen and High Time, some really decently branded long-time cannabis uh, companies companies are, are hurting or they're building too much debt. So is it still a good time to get into the cannabis space as an investor?
1: So I think it's a very good time. Uh, look, notwithstanding, we, we went through you know, a very difficult Q3 and Q4. The industry traded down tremendously. The publics got killed. The US MSOs, the Canadian LPs got destroyed Um, these companies were run thinking the capital markets were going to be open forever and that they could continually raise money. There was sort of no guidance from the board that drove them to a path to profitability. Once the publics dried up and traded down, the later stage private equity in, in sympathy dried up, and that affected things even down to the seed level. So we've been through that. And in many ways, while it's painful for many, particularly those that put money out 16, 17, and 18, and we're hoping for an exit in 19, in a way, it's good for the industry. Because now things have sort of right priced, not all things, but many things have right priced. Valuations have kind of come down out of the stratosphere to something that seems to be more normalized. And, you know, as we look forward in 2020, I think there are a number of things that are going to be real um, uh, drivers. Um, drivers for continued growth. Thank you. In 2020, right I, can, here are my notes. <laughs> <laughs> I can sort of talk to some of them if, if you'd like to. But I think as you analyze them, um, there's a number of things that can really drive growth as we go forward this year. What, for instance, what would that be, Jeff? So, the, well, so the first is exactly that. Some of these public companies getting on a path to profitability. Now, we've actually had some pretty good reports over the last few weeks. True Leaf—they um, announced seventy-one million dollars in revenue for Q3 with uh, uh, um, a, a positive EBITDA margin. Air Strategies, which is dominant in Nevada and Massachusetts, um, tremendous—seventy-one million. Um, I'm sorry, thirty. $32 million of adjusted EBITDA, $9 million um, uh, in the fourth quarter, $3.9 million in cash flow, tremendous job. Liberty Health Sciences, Planet 13, all of these companies are now starting to get it together. They're getting costs under control. They realize that they just can't go to the public markets, and that's a positive sign. One would argue that might be the most positive sign to sort of bring stability to the industry.
0: The industry Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The
1: second thing is success in the Midwest states. So, you know, in January, Michigan and Illinois um, just launched. Um, They're doing tremendous. Um, I think the uh, two-month sort of sales in Illinois was $39 million. Really good. Um, No big problems. Illinois, particularly being, you know, with Chicago being a high-density urban area, Um, really seeing those two programs come together is giving the industry a lot of confidence. Uh, After that, I think there's a lot of support for the Northeast states, right? Governor Cuomo has made some positive comments about supporting the process. Remember last year, New York missed by two votes in the Senate. Mm -hmm. It came down to two votes. They couldn't agree on expungement. They couldn't agree on allocation of tax resources. But Cuomo is all over it this year. He's already built it into the budget. And certainly, if New York goes, we think New Jersey, Connecticut, and Rhode Island are not far behind, which will bring sort of a big sort of East Coast hub to this industry. I think Connecticut. California. Yep. You know the, the 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 you know you can buy illicit product at fifty percent lower cost than you can buy legal product in California because of the ridiculous tax structure. And so um, I think that that's a very um, difficult thing for the industry and the industry is not really um, rebounded from that but there's some positive comments from Governor Newsom to get that under control Canada is you know now launched cannabis 2.0 where they're allowing other products and flour they're allowing edibles and beverages that rollout seems to be going well all of these things are very very positive um, notwithstanding that on the regulatory side the Safe Banking Act, Uh, Getting momentum in in Congress, I think, will be very important. And the FDA last week even came out with some positive comments about moving towards a structured program for the approval of CBD. All of these things, or any two or three of these things, will stabilize the industry and really drive growth into 2020 and twenty
0: one. So you mentioned the Safe Banking Act. We know that it passed very nicely in the the House, and now it goes to the Senate. We all know that there is... um, Well, let's just say not a lot of action going on in our government in Washington, D.C. these days. Um, Are you confident that the Senate may actually take this up before November 2020?
1: You know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Um, You know, remember, there are 420 banks that bank the industry. Many of them are community banks, state chartered banks, credit unions. But there's banking support in this industry. So I think... The Safe Banking Act will will sort of drive a lot of institutional debt providers to the industry, but I think the industry functions without it. So if this is a 2021 um, approval, I think that's fine. I mean, the sooner the better, but I'm not sure that's going to be the thing that's going to sort of accelerate this industry this year.
0: The UN comes out talking about descheduling internationally cannabis. Again, another positive development. It hasn't happened yet, but they're talking about it and they're following the World Health Organization's lead on this. Um, How much of a factor do you think that will be if that happens here in the United States?
1: I think it will matter, uh, certainly. It will give, I think, the U.S. um, Senate, the U.S. government sort of more support um, to sort of drive an initiative through and might have some effect on the MORE Act, um, which is, you know, just sort of sitting there. Um, so I think it helps. I don't think it's, I don't think the industry is going to turn on it, but I think it helps. Uh,
0: one of the biggest brands, the oldest brand in cannabis is High Times. Um, they just recently brought in Stormy Simon, a woman that I got to meet at MJ Biz an interview in December. There are some out there who think they've brought her in to perhaps put her in a position to either save or watch it go down the drain. Um, what's your feeling about the um, investing in brands and no better brand than High Times, even though they're, they're carrying a lot of debt right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, High, High Times has had a couple of bites of the apple in the last two years and none of it's worked out really well. Um, so um, I, I, I guess uh, you've got a few questions in there, all wrapped into
0: one statement. That's a I'm talk show. No that's comment. what I do.
1: I'm no comment? <laughs> oh. I talk about brands? Okay. Like. Yep. Um, yeah, and that's a media brand. It's not a product brand. Right. Uh, but it's a well-known brand in the space.
0: And now they're going into dispensaries, so she actually is trying to make it into that brand and take advantage of that. Yep. Oh, you don't want to talk about okay. it at all. <laughs> okay, that's cool. So okay. what are your thoughts on brands? That's what it says right here, then. Brands.
1: Yes. Okay. So, um, two thousand nineteen was supposed to be the year of the brand. Supposed to be the year of the beverage. Uh, certainly wasn't the year of the beverage. There are a lot of brands competing, you know, competing for shelf space. I guess, um, and I'm an investor, you know, in, in a in a brand. Um, I guess what I would say is that it's very difficult for an artisan brand to emerge where they don't control the supply chain, right? So they're not a producer of the biomass that goes into the product on one side, or they don't own the shelf space on the other side. If you're a large dispensary in California or Nevada uh, or Colorado, you're controlling the shelf space, you're probably gonna create your own brand. So I think it's very, very difficult. I can tell you I see tons of business plans for brands that have a unique element, a team that comes from CPG that seemingly can get it done. But I don't see, in in many cases, where the true advantage is and where they're going to have a predicate or an unfair advantage to win if they don't control one of those two things.
0: So these multi-state operators who have this seed-to-sale vertical that we keep seeing coming into new states... Uh, where is the biggest margin and is that the best way to kind of protect your investment if you get involved with one of these MSOs? So it's
1: not un-growing, and, you know, there there's a lot of sort of margin sort of compression around growing. Um, you're going to see a lot, you know, in a world that contemplates, you know, uh, repeal of prohibition. You're going to see a lot of grow happen in the southern states. You're going to see a lot in Mexico and Colombia. I mean, they're able to produce at about 10 cents a gram for flour. I think the best, most efficient producers in Canada are doing it at about $1.50. You're going to also see um, biosynthesis, where providers are essentially, uh, through proprietary yeast cultures, developing CBD and THC at 10 cents a gram, where it's consistent product brewed in like beer vats right out of yeast. You know, we don't have to go through sort of growth cycles that are expensive and take time. And there's so many variables into the weather and the conditions. So I think there's a lot of compression there. I'm not sure that's the place to spend uh, or to invest. I think it's going to be at retail and it's going to be in, in the brand. It's the, the ability to create a buying preference um, with a brand around a product That said, you're still going to need the ability to get the shelf space with that brand. But if you're sort of talking about ripping apart the P&L, it's really going to be um, from product with the brand to retail, that wholesale margin and then retail to consumer.
0: That's where most of the margin is. Speaking of wholesale, do you see a day where we might actually be trading wholesale cannabis on the commodities market? Sure. Like,
1: can't
0: tell you, what it is. <laughs> <laughs> you can't look into your crystal ball and say it's going to be at least 10 years.
1: I, I Yeah, there's a lot of things to guess at. I'm not, I am not I don't have the brain space to be guessing about that, but yeah. I think it will happen.
0: Yeah, and, and maybe in our... It's an agriculture
1: crop. Right, right. It's going to be a fairly large one. Yeah. So why shouldn't it act like that, you know, in a world that contemplates, you know, uh, multi-state
0: uh, interstate commerce
1: and, and repeal of prohibition. Yeah. Like an ag
0: product. Yeah. I can't believe by the way, that I've lived to see this day in my home state that it's, it's legal here for both medicinal use and for adult use recreational, you know, Jeff, you know, you've known me a long time. I never thought I'd see the Red Sox and Patriots win 10 championships in 20 years, let alone in my lifetime. Uh, And now we have cannabis legal as well. Um, When people come to you looking for money or pitching you, what's the biggest mistake that entrepreneurs make?
1: One mistake.
0: Okay, multiple mistakes. Um,
1: Multiple mistakes. Um, Well, I would tell you... Um, not understanding the numbers. You know, it's so easy with Excel today to build a financial model um, which in presentation doesn't pass the smell test. Let me give you an example. Um, You know, I spent a lot of time in the software industry and I can't tell you how many software companies, SaaS companies, software as a service, would come to me and, you know, you'd look at their Excel model. The first thing you know about the Excel model is whatever number is there, is assuredly not the number that they're going to hit. It's any number but that number, because nobody can predict. But if you're looking at a SaaS company, and you look out the third and fourth year, and you see that there's like an 80% EBITDA margin, there's no SaaS company in the world that ever delivered that. If you look at all the public comps, you know, the best performers might have a 25 to 30% EBITDA margin. And the truth is, they just haven't figured out what the expenses are going to be in the hours. So. That's a pet peeve of mine, is not really being thoughtful about the financial model, even though the financial model, it's never going to be accurate. But it has to pass the smell test. I would also say that companies make it confusing. It's full of jargon. Um, that, uh, and they don't set proper context for investors. They don't unfold a story that starts with the problem that they're solving, the unique way in which they're solving it, the economic consequence of it not being solved and then their unique solution, their market size, the team, the current metrics, the traction, the things that are going to be, you know, where, where success will turn on. It's a story that's not together that makes it easy to listen to. Then the last thing I would tell you, it's a pet peeve, is that when people are dishonest or inexperienced about their total available market, their TAM where they're looking at the market they're selling into's TAM rather than their TAM, meaning if they sold 100% of the customers available to them at their average selling price, how big would they be? That would be their total available market. Not the size of the cannabis industry that's expected to be 50 billion. That's not their TAM. That's the size of the market that they're selling into. And you'd be surprised how many fairly experienced entrepreneurs don't really sort of correct for that in, in their selling documents when they're talking to investors.
0: When you mention that figure, 50 billion size of the industry, are you including the hemp side of things too? No, that's cannabis only. Gotcha. That's, I just want to make sure that we make that distinction because hemp to me seems like it has so many more uses than the cannabis sativa THC side of things. Well, we don't
1: know. I mean, you know, aside from the industrial side of hemp, which, you know, is there, there's really not even a lot of investment capital going into it, and there should be. But, you know, is CBD the omega-3 of the 2010s? You know, I get it, there's medicinal principles that are um, more prolific in CBD than omega-3, but do we need it in our vinegar? Do we need it in our food? Do we need to have dinner parties with it? Or is it enough to just buy a really good tincture or a gel cap or, or a cream when, you know, when, when we're anxious or we have pain or or for other ailments? Um, I just don't know. I just, I, I don't know how big uh, it will eventually be just on sort of the, you know, the CBD for the wellness uh, benefit.
0: Yeah. And I think we didn't even touch on CBN, which is like the the, the real um, anti-inflammatory component in, in that plant. But even explaining the differences between those two is for a, someone who did better in chemistry than I did, for sure. <laughs> because I did not take chemistry, and I, I, it, I, science freaks well, me out. Well, I remember you in high school. You were a pretty good soccer player. Oh, man, that's great. And I did not pay him to say that, ladies and gentlemen. I just want to say, and you knew half the team I played with, Barry and Alan, I mean, Greg, you know exactly. I won't put in their last names, but I know you know who they are. Um, Jeff, I got to ask you, it says here, you want to talk about your favorite books. When the hell do you have time to read a book? <laughs> well, I didn't say when I read them. <laughs> Fair enough. Is there a favorite book of
1: yours? You know, I would say there are three great books. So one, you know, serving the cannabis, you know, the, con- the uh, Cannabis Manifesto. Steve D'Angelo, I know has been a frequent guest on your show. Yeah. A phenomenal book to sort of get your head around. The history of the plant, um, you know, the social mission around the plant, the economic mission around the plant. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal book. On the business side, the two books that I would recommend for entrepreneurs would be uh, one, "The Hard Thing About Hard Things," which is uh, by Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, uh, that talks about his life as an entrepreneur and the difficulties he had um, in running a business and exiting a business. And then the last one I would say is Zero to One, uh, which is by Peter Thiel, which really talks about innovation and disruption. Uh, great book, again, for entrepreneurs. There's many others, but I would say those three, the, you know, the latter two on the entrepreneur side have been my two favorite books.
0: Um, I'm going to throw in a, a favorite book of mine because I met the author, actually, the editor. Her name is Ashley Pachillo. She's from, I believe it's 0.7 Consulting out of Colorado, and it was Breaking the Grass Ceiling, and it was profiles of 30 women entrepreneurs in the cannabis space, and it's, it's an easy read because it's like 30 short stories, but I am amazed at the impact that women have had in this cannabis industry already, and we're still in its infancy. Do you find that to be me, true? Let me, yeah, let me speak
1: to that. I mean, we have seven portfolio companies now. Um, three of them have a female CEO and, in two of those cases, a, a dual female founding team, where the CEO and the COO, as fairly equal co-founders, yep. are both female. So there is sort of a, um, you know, in the tech industry, it took a long time to get there. There now are now a lot of female-focused funds serving tech there's really not that many in cannabis, although I know of one or two that are trying to get off the ground. But I think there's been uh, a, a greater sensibility towards diversity in the C suite in the cannabis industry than there has been in tech. I can tell you right now, in our members fund, we have 44 members. Probably 20 of them are women. And we are amending our charter to sort of work towards one third of the companies that we invest in to have a diversity and inclusion component, either a female or a minority, in the C-suite or a product that is fit for purpose for a female or minority buyer, because we think that that's important. We're already there in our seven, we sort of did that organically without having that as a mandate, but now that's becoming more of a mandate for us.
0: Very cool. And uh, Jeff, you write a a blog on a regular basis, why don't you give yourself a little plug here?
1: Thank you. It's probably the only clever thing I've done in my life, which is the, not necessarily not the blog true. itself, okay. but the name. <laughs> the name of the blog is Think About It. So thinkabout.it. So I'll give myself a hand. That's a little bit
0: clever. Uh oh. Did we lose him? As soon as he said clever thing in his life, did you see we lost the signal? Is that what happened? I think so. That's a riot. And now he's frozen on our screen. Well, anyway. That was Jeff Finkel, and you could Google him, and it's F-I-N-K-L-E, and ArcView is his fund, and you can find out more about him just by going on LinkedIn and linking in with him. So for Jeff Finkel, I'm your host of In the Weeds, Jimmy Young. We'll see you next time, and remember, it's a whole new world of weed out there.
1: We are Pro Cannabis Media.